Welcome aboard, and thanks for flying with us. We're committed to making your flight safe and comfortable. So before we depart, we'll be showing a brief safety presentation. I get horny on airplanes. This information can help you if there's an emergency. As soon as you're herded through that little door, you're made very aware of your lap. You walk through first class, and everyone is at crotch level, staring at you. You sit, packed in, maybe the middle seat, with two strangers strapped in on either side, constantly touching, your sweat mixing with their sweat. Or if you're on the aisle, you've got people's lower regions in your face as they shove their bags into the overhead compartments, jiggling, slamming, trying to make things fit. We sublimate our sense of doom, but it's always there, flickering. The dangerous thrill of 30,000 feet combined with the infinite boredom of six hours cross-country. Result? Horny. I'm not a member of the Mile High Club. I've never acted on these impulses. If there's a woman sitting next to me, I barely make eye contact with her until the flight attendant takes our drink order. Contrary to the roles, I often play on television procedurals. I'm not some creepy perv weirdo. But these feelings are more acute in coach. When I do guest shots outside of L.A., I get flown first class. You get a three-episode arc on Unforgettable as the serial killer, you're going to get more legroom. Or when you're the counterfeiter on Nashville Heat. Or the computer hacker terrorist, or the molester gynecologist, or the mastermind behind the ransoming of the governor's daughter. More space, more TV options, free wine. It's part of the deal. But if I'm paying for the flight, like this trip, I fly coach. I'm not profligate. Basic, sweaty, shoulder-touching transport to New Jersey. And now... As you leave the gate, make sure your seatbelt is fastened. To fasten, insert the metal tip into the buckle and adjust mm. the strap so it's low and Lap imagery. Okay, inserting metal tip. Or press the latch to Cabin crew, prepare for cross check. Dark hair, mid-twenties, bit of a Jersey vibe. Not exactly my type, although that is my stock, born and bred. And for you? Could I have a white wine? The only time I drink white wine is on planes. A few years ago, I ordered a white wine on a flight to play a wife killer on a procedural in Miami, and now I totally associate white wine with airplanes. I only ever drink white wine out of tiny plastic bottles while miles above the earth. I bring the bottles back to my godchild in L.A., and she puts them in her bin with her toy food. So you'll go over, and she'll offer you a tiny bottle of wine to go with your plastic broccoli and Velcroed orange sections. I drink red wine in real life. On this visit, I brought a bottle of Cote d'Arone from my dad's retirement party, and my mom put it in the fridge overnight. They just don't know about that kind of thing. I said to my mother, you don't put red wine in the fridge. And she said, I thought you did. I explained that you refrigerate white wine, you don't refrigerate red wine. And she said, why one and not the other? And I said, 
that's just how it works. My dad runs a machine shop, or ran. Anyway, he's a beer guy. He used to get the kind where you actually have to pierce the top of the can with a church key, and I'd say, you know, they make those in pull tab now, Dad. And he'd say, it tastes better if you have to work for it, Jim. The dictionary is the only place where success comes before work. He opened his retirement speech with a quote by Vince Lombardi. That brought the crowd to its feet with applause. It was essentially a revisitation of the themes in his canned beer pull tab speech, a return of form. I've been to a lot of events in the last 15 years, the Indie Spirit Awards, which can be a pretty rambunctious crowd, but I've never seen the enthusiasm that paralleled that which my dad received in the banquet room at Sophie's by the Sea, while he shifted uncomfortably from foot to foot for nine or ten straight minutes. I remember initially cringing and thinking, he really needs to work on his focus and all the rest of those nervous knee-jerk thoughts, but then he went into his it started with a drill press and Bayonne bit, and by the end of it, I was on my feet too, cheering him on. My twin brother Shane had brought a girl named Maria, or Rhea, as she referred to herself, a new girlfriend, unless she was the one I met at Thanksgiving and she changed her hair. Before Shane had even made his way to the mic, she was already standing and yelling, yeah! her acrylic nails clacking together in unconditional support. That's nice, I thought. Shane had been having trouble getting back on his feet, as my mom would say, ever since he got back from vacation, as Rhea would probably phrase it. Vacation is what people in New Jersey call jail when they're being cute about it. I think taking over the shop from Dad was supposed to give him that extra boost like when you give a homeless kid a dog to take care of so he'll try harder to survive because now he cares about the dog. Shane's worked in the business off and on since high school, though, so it only made sense. Whether or not he'd been on vacation, he was always going to get the shop. I won't pretend differently. But the timing of it was convenient for him. We spent a few evenings together at the house before the night of the party, and it seemed like he actually had things pretty well together. There was this new sense of confidence about him that was almost unsettling to me. He still has all our old friends from high school. They really rallied around him, I guess. They were all at the retirement dinner, too. They'd whack him on the back and raise their glasses and catcall whenever he walked by. Hey, Jimmy, how you doing? They'd ask politely while waiting in line for the restroom. Still acting? Shane used to get mistaken for me all the time especially when he'd go to New York. He's a good deal heavier than I am, wears a lot more flannel. But it still used to happen. Women would come up to him and ask him if he was the foot fetish shoe salesman from Sex and the City. And he'd say, yeah. <laughs> he even signed autographs. <laughs> he once let a stranger buy him a drink under the impression that he was the voice of Dr. Venture. It was making those people happy, but mostly he was doing it to fuck with me. But before yesterday in Asbury Park, I can't remember anyone ever having mistook me for Shane. No one's ever come up to me and said anything like, 
Hey, aren't you the guy who used to have that metal band? Or didn't you swing a hammer for Mikey Migliazzi's crew? With Shane, people can never be quite sure. But with me, somehow, they always knew. I slept in my old bedroom the night of the party. The window with the tree outside it. Jersey crickets. The room I once painted all red and tacked posters and playbills to as an arty adolescent. It's white again now. The next morning, everyone slept late and just sort of puttered around the house. I decided to borrow Dad's car and take a ride to the ocean. Asbury Park. My old stomping grounds. Where I used to roam around for hours instead of going to my community college classes. Sometimes I'd tag along with my friend Wyatt would go up and down the shore trying to sell these cloth bracelets that his girlfriend made to the summer tourists. Katie Spriggs. I formed a theater company there in the 80s. We did a production of Marat Saad in an abandoned ice cream parlor. It was an overcast day. The beach was empty. No one on the boardwalk except one other guy. I looked out at the ocean. Mist on my face. There's something about the Atlantic. When you look out at the Pacific's horizon, you think about tropical islands and turtles and fruit just beyond your line of sight. When you look out at the Atlantic, you know that somewhere out there, storms are happening, nor'easters are forming. A ship is getting hurled into an iceberg. With one glance, even on the calmest fuzzy gray day, you know that the Atlantic is in the business of killing people. The air tingles. The salt stays on your skin for days. There's an electricity. The other guy was closer now. He was looking at me. I've seen this expression before. The recognizing me look. As he moved tentatively closer, I tried to guess what he knew me from. Sometimes it's from TV, sometimes it's a film, lately it's Homeland. With this guy, 30-ish, scraggly hair, long coat, my best guess was Venture Brothers. I'd find out soon enough. But as the guy got closer, he seemed to change his mind about speaking to me. That happens sometimes too. So I just gave him a friendly how's it going nod as he passed by. And he stops and says, Shane? And I smiled at the guy. And I said, yeah. I'm Brovi, he said.
I mean, I think that's what he said. Brophy. I don't think it was Brophy. Brophy. How's it going? I said. All right, he said. And he reached into his coat pocket, took out a thick package, and handed it to me. It was about the size of a paper bag. Brown paper with packing tape wrapped around it. I took it. I looked at it. Moderate heft. I nodded. And I put it in my coat pocket. It fit exactly. Fair enough. I said. He nodded. The two of us just stood there. I looked out at the ocean. Three boys who looked around 13 ran past us, laughing, flooding down the wooden planks. I turned to Brovi and said, See you, man. All right, he said. And I walked away with my brother's package. That was 12 hours ago. I went back to my folks' house. I said goodbye to everybody. Gave Shane a hug. Dad drove me to Newark. And here we are, about to land in Los Angeles, the city of angels, sunshine, palm trees, an endless sprawl with plenty of room to stretch out, lots of TV work. I once met Justin Bieber on a studio backlot. The package is still in my jacket pocket, stowed according to procedure, under the seat in front of me. Apparently it hadn't set off any red flags at security. I'm still trying to figure out why I did it. One explanation is I'm an actor. Suddenly there were given circumstances and I just committed. It's even a type of scene that I'm fairly versed in, considering the scope of my career. But that doesn't explain why I didn't just give the package to Shane once I got back to the house. Why it's under the seat right now, next to my wallet and boarding pass. I don't want this package. What happens next? I'll land at LAX. Shane will have found out by now. I'll turn on my phone and probably have 10 or 20 missed calls, voicemails, threatening misspelled texts. And then what? I'll ignore them. Call my agent. Line up some auditions. Bring my goddaughter her new little plastic wine bottles and pretend to eat her fake food. Move up to first class. 
and pretend to ignore the passing crotches of coach passengers instead of feeling the seatbelt low and tight across my own lap. I don't need all that leg room. I want to be packed in. Tightly. I don't want to see the sun set over an ocean that moves toward distant coconut groves. I want to see it rise over an ocean that hurls ships into icebergs. I want to go back to New Jersey. Where Shane's going to kick the shit out of me. Cabin crew, prepare for landing. We're about to make our descent. Getting On with James Urbaniak, Episode 9, Cross Check, was written by Bree Williams and James Urbaniak, and produced and performed by James Urbaniak.